in us whether God's mission was a success or a failure. Because by the end of the book, from all we can tell, Jonah is still quite angry at God. Now, there is a thread of truth in all of these. Maybe it's just a thread at times, and maybe it's more than a thread, a little bit of a rope. But there's a thread of truth in all of these. But the problem is that they obscure the message of the book itself. And that's what we want to avoid. So what is the message of Jonah? Well, I'm going to be up front with you in this introduction and tell you what I believe the message is, but I'm going to take several weeks to prove it as we walk through the book itself. But I'll give you some examples of that today. I mean, the truth is you could preach this entire book in one sermon. That would not be hard. Or you can do what I'm going to do and do it in several sermons because I think we need to keep hearing the message over and over and over as we go through it. But from the perspective of Jonah, so if I'm I'm going to say, what is the book about from Jonah's perspective? Not necessarily Jonah who may have written the book, but the Jonah in the story about whom the story is written. His position, from where he sits as a character in the story, what is this book about? Well, it's about the absurdity of God's compassion. I would argue that it's Position is a little skewed because he doesn't understand rightly God's compassion. But it is from his vantage point, and he's essentially the one that's main character in the story, about the absurdity of God's compassion. Now, I would then argue that from the Lord's perspective, as he acts and speaks in the story's real time, in the story, it is about his people's preoccupation with and misconception of justice. His people's preoccupation with and misconception of justice. You see, God's compassion seems absurd to those preoccupied with justice. God's compassion seems absurd to those preoccupied with justice. And that, I think, gets closer to the heart of this book. Now, more simply, we could say it this way. It's about the extreme strangeness, and I mean extreme strangeness, of God's ways in the world. God's ways in the world are not the way we think they should be. Most of the time. And the Bible does a really good job of repeating that theme for us over and over and over again. But truth be told, we don't always get it. In fact, we don't often get it because we're so caught up in how we think the world should run. Like Jonah, we are often aghast at the absurdity of God's compassion because we insist on justice, at least our version of it. Not justice for us, of course. We prefer God's compassion for us. It's the others we're more concerned with. You know, the undeserving. We speak of the undeserving poor. I'm not exactly sure what that is, to be honest with you. Or the undeserving wicked. We use language like deserving and undeserving because it sounds justified in our minds as we use that language. Jonah didn't want God to have compassion on the undeserving Assyrians, for sure. And they were undeserving by any definition of the word we would have. Just as the seaweed wrapped around Jonah's head in the depth of the sea in chapter 2, his sense of justice had him all tied up inside. What we learn in this book, as James Bruckner puts it in the NIV application commentary on Jonah, Quote, God's compassion and clemency were not weaknesses in God's justice, but were better justice than human justice. Better justice than human justice. Today we'll introduce the book of Jonah under three headings. 
Uh, first heading is Jonah as Hebrew Scripture. The second, Jonah as uh, Jonah the comic prophet. And the third, the arbiter of justice. Jonah the arbiter of justice. So uh, let's look under that first heading, Jonah as Hebrew Scripture. And let's read verse 1 again, if you would, with me. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying... I'm just going to pause there because there's a lot of relevance there. Um, and, and when I say... Jonah is Hebrew Scripture. What I'm saying is, is that the first thing that we must do is approach the book of Jonah as Hebrew Scripture. It was written in a community called Israel. They were Hebrew by, by ethnic, you know, their, their ethnic identity. Um, it was written to a particular people with a set of particular experiences in life. And it must be read in view of those experiences. To say that it is Hebrew Scripture written to Israel doesn't mean that it is not Christian Scripture. It is Christian Scripture. But it's important to recognize that it's only Christian Scripture because through Jesus Christ we are the seed of Abraham and therefore we are Israel and it is our family history. We have been adopted in according to the book of Romans, according to Galatians. You know, these are key truths of the New Testament. So it is Christian Scripture because it is Hebrew Scripture. You're following me on that. That's an important thing to remember. The problem is that there is only one Israelite in the story. Guess who? Jonah. And he is the only character in the story that we don't want to identify ourselves with. But he's the one we must identify ourselves with because he is us. He is all of us. Jesus seemed to think so. Jesus identified himself with Jonah in the Gospels. We'll talk more about that as we go through the series. But clearly, he's the one that we are supposed to identify with, not the Assyrians, not the pagans on the boat, but Jonah. And guess what? He's the only one in the story who gets everything wrong. I mean, not even the Assyrians got everything wrong. They got, it seems, at least in the story, everything right. And the pagans, oh my goodness, they were amazing. But not Jonah. Jonah is, he's not even fixed by the end of the story. So it kind of leaves us without resolution for our own problems, at least for a few hundred years, until somebody else comes and, and provides some answer to that. Jesus, by the way. One commentator said it this way Jonah is a ridiculous excuse for a prophet, the, only, or the holy man as a screw, as screw up, and we are just like him. Why Jesus would want to identify with him is a deep mystery, as deep as his love for the rest of us. We have, we have to begin by, telling, by being willing to identify with the ridiculous prophet ourselves. Otherwise, we miss the point of the joke. And I've got news for you. In Jonah, the point of the joke is us. We are, we are the butt end of the joke as we go through the book. And we'll see that as we walk through the book. You might say, I don't know that I want to go through a Bible study where I'm the butt end of the joke. I'm sorry, it's in the Bible. It's there, and we have to walk through it with that understanding. I mean, let me give you some examples why we don't like being the joke of the story, how we tend to identify ourselves in stories and get it wrong. Let's take the story of David and Goliath. We've all heard it in Sunday school growing up. And how is it told? It's told in such a way that you had all these bad Israelites 
who were not courageous. They're all scared, hiding over here. And you've got this one good Israelite who is courageous, and he stands on God's covenant, and he defeats Goliath. Now, how can you defeat the giants in your life? Who'd you just identify with? David. The reality is, in that story, we're supposed to identify with all those cowards in the, uh, hiding in the foxhole. Because that's who we are, and we need the Messiah, the King, the one that is coming, at that time written, the one that is coming to rescue us from the giant death in our lives. We can say more on that, so much more. But we tend to get it wrong. Or Moses. Now we got Moses. Moses, he's a prophet, and he's clearly one of the greatest figures in the Old Testament, but we really struggle with Moses because well, Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land, so the last thing we want to do is identify with him. I mean, he is the David, so to speak. But we look at Moses when he's supposed to speak to the rock, and he strikes the rock, and then he can't go into the promised land, and we like to think to ourselves, I would have gotten that right. I would have spoken to the rock. Well, if I'm honest with you, I would have beat the ever-living daylights out of the rock. I'd have beat that rock so hard with whatever sticks I could find that it would have been broken into pieces. If I'm honest enough with how I respond to people's grumbling and complaining, because that's what he was responding to. And the truth is, the people that we are related to in that story are the Israelites, again, the ones grumbling and complaining in the wilderness. Because guess what we do when we're in a wilderness? We grumble and complain. The problem in Jonah is that we like to think we're better than Jonah, and certainly we should be, but far too often we are not, and we don't see it. Our sense of justice can lead us to think that God's compassion is absurd, so we dismiss it. We get all tied up in our justice. We don't even have to flee to Tarshish. We just ignore the call of God to do the absurd acts of compassion because uh, we reason it isn't God. Can't be God. That doesn't make sense. Well, it certainly didn't to Jonah. We bring our justice to our marriages, our churches, our engagements with the Assyrians. I mean the Democrats or the Republicans. Or the Libertarians, for that matter. Doesn't matter which one you are. But the other ones, they're the Assyrians, and they're going to destroy us. Right? Jonah may adjust your understanding of what it means to be chosen by God. That's a theme that we're going to look at as we walk through this book. Jonah's the only chosen one in the story. And nothing goes away that he would have liked it to have gone. To read Jonah as Hebrew Scripture means that we are to read it through the lens of the people for whom it was written. The opening words make us think Jonah is a prophet, and he is, and that this is a book of his prophecies, which it isn't. Seems a bit odd because every other time a book opens with the word of the Lord came to so-and-so saying, what follows is all the stuff the Lord said to him. Well, you have one line of what the Lord said and the rest is narrative. At best, you could count the poem in chapter 2 as some kind of prophecy. Certainly is. But really, this book is a narrative. So what you expect, you're let down on. It's not what comes about. It's a narrative, but it's an unusual narrative, no doubt. Why was this book given to us in Scripture? I mean, think about it for a moment. 
The book of Jonah may be about what happened with Jonah and the Ninevites, but it was not written to the Ninevites. It was written to the people of God. So it's not for the Ninevites. It's for the people of God. Jonah was not written as a litmus test for faith. Now, I'm going to likely offend some people right now, and I'm sorry. It is not my intent to offend, but it is my intent to adjust. And I think there's some areas we need adjustment in because one thing that is evident, and I don't think it takes a genius to figure this out, the world at large today is not good at dialogue with people they disagree with. And the church seems to be no better. And I would like to suggest that what I'm about to say has a lot to do with why we can't have conversations with people we disagree with because we're so afraid that if we even concede that we can hear them, that we've somehow undone our faith. So, in that spirit, let me, let me suggest some things. If Jonah was, is not written as a litmus test, that eliminates some things. And it, when people think it is, it goes a couple of different ways. One, if we can just prove that a person can live inside a fish or a whale or whatever it is for three days and survive, we've proven that the Bible is God's Word. No, we haven't. That would have nothing to do with whether or not the Bible is God's Word. I don't even understand the logic of that, but that is the logic that is often employed. Now, There are those who would like to say that if we can prove that all the history in the Bible is accurate, then we know it's God's Word. Okay, so give me a good history book. Is that God's Word too? It doesn't prove anything about it being God's Word. But that's okay. That's not what our basis of faith should be upon. should not be upon that. But the other way that can go is that we, we tend to use it as to whether or not someone believes that the story is historical fact and not a parable that that is somehow a litmus test for whether they believe in the supernatural, the resurrection of Jesus, or whether or not they're even a Christian. After all, we're all aware that salvation is by faith in the fact that Jonah was really swallowed by a large sea creature and survived for three days. Wait, no it's not, is it? It's by faith in something else, if I remember right. For the record, there are a lot of genuine believers. Hear me. There are a lot of genuine believers who believe that miracles happen, that God raised Jesus from the dead, which is the greatest miracle, and that the Bible is God's word, and they think that the book of Jonah is a parable and not an actual event. I don't care if you agree with them or disagree with them. That is possible. It is logically quite possible to hold that position. And I can actually assure you, because I've talked to some, that they believe that it is a parable because they are adamant that the Bible is God's Word. They are adamant that it is true. And so they take seriously the form in which it is given. They take seriously the genre, we'll talk about that in a minute, in which it is communicated, and they believe that the genre tells them that it's a parable. Now, frankly, that decision is way above my pay grade. I don't know. But I certainly have no problem with somebody living three days inside of a fish because regardless of whether it's possible or not, God can do that, just like he can raise Jesus from the dead. And yes, by the way, raising Jesus from the dead would be harder to believe in than the fish thing. But I do believe in it. But I'm, I do care about that. I really don't care about whether the fish was real or not real. I really don't care. At the end of the day, that affects my faith zero. 
And I think we should be able to engage people that think differently than us about things, realizing that they may be genuine believers also. It, it did get quieter in here, minus the bells. You know, just, just you know, saying. I, 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 I'll explain to you how this works. We love litmus tests. We do. I had someone tell me a number of years ago in a Sunday evening class, which tells you it was at least before 2020. I haven't had those since 2020, but this was probably 10 or 12 years ago, maybe more. I just taught on, on Genesis 1 that morning. And they believed that faith, they, they were explaining to me as we were talking, it was a foundations class if I remember right, they were explaining to me that they believed that faith in a literal six-day creation, not more than 10,000 years ago, was a test that God had set up to distinguish real Christians from false. Okay, so it's salvation by faith in a literal six-day creation, which is not all that different from salvation by faith that that was a real fish three days and... But I don't think the New Testament teaches us that's what we're saved by. The last time I checked, the gospel says we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I assured her that I knew plenty of Christians who did not believe that, in fact, um, and I would dare say that plenty of them were her heroes in the faith, did not believe in a six-day literal creation. We could put Augustine in that. We could put B.B. Uh, Warfield in that. I mean, giants of the faith, giants of the Reformed faith, who did not believe those things. Now, would she dare say they weren't real Christians? Well, I would suspect she would have to adjust her thinking on the matter. Here's my point. If we read Jonah as a litmus test, we are distracted by what is not the point of the book and are likely to miss the point of the book. That's what we need to look for. Jonah was written for people who existed, listen, just logic, follow through the logic of, of this for a second. Jonah was not written for the people who were in the story. It was written for the people who existed after the story. Just like the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were not written for the people who walked with Jesus. They were written for the people who came later that did not walk with Jesus, did not know him. They were written by those who did for those who did not. You tracking with me? Written, the original audience was not Jonah's contemporaries, but those who came after these events in this story. The book itself does not tell us who wrote it. So we, we don't have any inspired statement about who wrote it. It is about Jonah, just as the Gospels are about Jesus. But Jesus did not write the Gospels, at least not in any human sense. He did not write the Gospels. Now, in a divine sense, yes, we could argue that. He did, but he did not write the Gospels in any human sense. And so it might be that Jonah wrote this book. It might be that Jonah did not. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it was written several decades, if not centuries, after the events themselves took place. Okay? Nothing wrong with that. That could be just fine. Doesn't affect our faith in Scripture one iota. But here's the thing. The earliest it could have been written would be during Jonah's lifetime, but there's plenty of evidence to say it was written later. Now, if that's the case, given that a mere 30 to 40 years after the events described, Assyria destroyed Israel, the people about whom it is written, and they were never to be regathered again. So the likelihood, I would suggest to you, is that the people receiving this book understand 
that these Assyrians that God forgives are the very ones that destroyed them and annihilated them from human history. That the Jews, which would be properly what they were called because they're from the line of Judah, the survivals, the two tribes that survived captivity, realize in reading this book that the ten tribes about whom it is discussing were actually destroyed and annihilated and never to be seen again in human history. Now that kind of ratchets up the tension in the book, doesn't it? Wait a minute. God, you're going to forgive them. And if you hadn't forgiven them, they would have been destroyed and we would still survive. This part of our people, this ten twelfths, if you will, of Israel that no longer exists. They would still be here, but instead you chose to forgive the Assyrians. You, the all-knowing God, you chose to forgive the Assyrians. And therefore... These ten tribes do not exist. You can see now that this book begins to get a little bit tense to the original audience. What's going on here? How could God allow something like that to take place? God is sending Jonah on a mission, think about it, that will result in the death of Israel the ten northern tribes. If Jonah had not gone, according to the book, the way it's displayed, the Assyrians would not have been spared, and therefore they would not have been able to destroy and obliterate the entire northern kingdom of Israel. Now we'll talk more about this when we get to chapter 2. But this gets to the heart, I believe, of why Christ identified his death and resurrection with Jonah. Jonah was not running from God because he lacked the confidence necessary to do mission or because uh, he didn't like non-Jewish people or because he feared what the Assyrians would do to him. In fact, he might have preferred that they just killed him. He wanted God to kill him, so he didn't have had any problem with that. Jonah has plenty of confidence himself, which is why he's angry with God that he wants to spare the enemies. Of Israel. See, he knows that if he goes and preaches, this is going to turn out swimmingly for the Assyrians. That's what he doesn't like. So it's not a lack of confidence. The book is about God's mission and about how Jonah and the rest of us often don't like it. We like our mission, you know, being a better me, living to our full potential, discovering God's will for my life, those kinds of things. We like that. Even our sanctified mission, growing a, a church that reaches our city or, or the world, adding the new sanctuary that will seat a thousand more people, or planting ten churches by the year 2030. But, and this is one of the central points of the book of Jonah, I think, we don't like God's mission to show compassion to the completely undeserving, indeed those who deserve otherwise, in particular because they will harm us. And this leads to our next heading, and don't worry, the next two headings are much shorter than the first one. Jonah the Comic Prophet. Now, I have to say that I almost named the whole series Jonah the Comic Prophet, but it, even though it kind of tells us how we understand the message, it doesn't get to the message, so I didn't use it for that, but it's still true. It's, he was the comic prophet. Uh, we, we ought to have fun reading the book of Jonah. We ought to have fun. I, I wish we had like a laugh track in the back and I could just tell them when to push the button so we know when we're supposed to be laughing. 
because there are so many funny things in the book that we miss because we don't like understand the language or different things that were going on in that setting. And I'll point some of them out as we go along. As prophets go, Jonah is not unique in his resistance to God's call. In fact, it is almost universally true that prophets are resistant to God's call, being prophetic in the real sense, not just being offensive. That's what most people mean when they say being, you know, so-and-so, he's really prophetic, which means offensive, generally. That's not prophetic. But being actually prophetic, which is what the church is called to be, to speak God's will and way to the world, being prophetic is dangerous and costly. Jonah, and, and therefore prophets, tend to resist that calling, as does the church. But Jonah takes the cake as it comes to being forced to say uncle, and even still, he remains angry at the Lord. I mean, he goes to an extreme. He runs as far as he can in the other direction. I mean, Moses just simply had an argument with God about the point. And Jeremiah, you know, certainly was some resistance, but uh, Jonah takes the cake. One commentary suggests Jonah is a comic figure. He does everything wrong, almost, yet through him the Lord of Israel does everything right. Jonah would not have thought so, of course. He would have thought the Lord of Israel did everything wrong, as we'll see in chapter 4. The very fact that he is introduced, and this is one of those things, when we read the introduction, the very first line of this, of this story, we should hit the laugh track because it's hilarious when you think about it in light of the story. Because the very first track uh, tells us uh, Jonah, his name means innocent or dove, innocent dove, son of Amittai or son of faithfulness. Well, Jonah's anything but innocent or faithful. I mean, he's maybe the son of unfaithfulness and guilty as charged, but not innocent or faithful. Um, and so, again, the laugh track should be hit. Now, outside this book, we, we all, all we know about Jonah is in 2 Kings 14, and it's not much. He prophesied during the 41-year reign of Israel's, that's the northern kingdom again, most wicked kings. I mean, uh, the, the, one of their most wicked kings, if not the most wicked king. That's when he prophesied. And we read this there in 2 Kings 14. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah... Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. Now, this is the second Jeroboam. The first one was super, super wicked, and the second one exceeds his wickedness, okay? He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. That's his you know, ancestor who has had his name, which he caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea. So his kingdom extended or expanded. Though he was wicked, it got bigger under his reign. Um, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. Well, that's interesting. And the verses that follow explain that God didn't destroy them only because he hadn't already said he would. So he didn't want to go against what he, he you know, had said, so to speak. And so... He would wait to destroy them until he had said that he would destroy them. Which is to say that Jonah was only right because God had integrity. Now, we can argue that Jonah was a great prophet because what he prophesied came true. Sure enough. But it's a bit like, and I'm going to, again, maybe offend some here, but it's worth it, I think, to get our heads on straight about what's going on in this book. 
It's a bit like the charismatic church leaders who prophesied that Trump would win and that the election would be turned over. But then, of course, Jonah had the advantage of actually being right in the end. You see, nobody in Israel's history reading back into 2 Kings and reading the story of Jonah would think, wow, he was a great prophet. They would have all thought he was a schmuck. He was a schmuck because he cozied up to this wicked, 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 wicked king and told him that everything would go well with him, never mind that it turned out to be true. Everybody thought that eh, he wasn't looked upon favorably by those that followed. To understand any book, we have to understand its genre, its style of writing. It isn't just the words that are inspired, it's the style which God chose to communicate through that is equally inspired. Just about everything. It's used 14 times in this very short book. It's a great city, a great wind, a great storm. The sailors greatly feared the storm and they greatly feared the Lord. It is a great fish, such a great city that it would take three days to walk across. And don't try to prove that one historically because no city in the ancient world took three days to walk across. There isn't a city in the ancient world that you couldn't have walked across in probably half a day. Okay? Everything is exaggerated on purpose. It's the worst storm. It's the worst everything. And it's the biggest city that has the greatest wickedness. I mean, it's all of these things piled up one upon the other. It has something to do with the style of writing. Uh, God sparing Nineveh was an exceeding, exceedingly great evil to Jonah. But the tree that God gave to provide him shade was exceedingly, gave him exceedingly great joy. See how this, everything is to its extreme. And when he finally gets to the exaggeratedly huge city, he walks for days into it and says five words in Hebrew. It's five words. Which result in repentance more immediate and evident than any other place in the Bible. You follow that? I mean, like the Assyrians, more imminent, I mean, just immediate and evident. The point is that whatever style this is, it speaks both to in generalities, no king of no specific king of Nineveh is mentioned, no name is given, and hyperbole. Now Jesus used hyperbole, so it's okay if the author of this book used hyperbole. That's a normal way of communicating. Everything is great, great, great. Probably the closest genre we have today which could be applied to this book is satire. I don't think it is satire strictly because I don't know that they had satire as a genre in that day, but it certainly fits that genre well. Satire is a comic play on reality wherein the figures are well known, the events are real but exaggerated, and the joke is on the audience. I think that gets pretty close to describing this book. And I think it should be read that way. A reading of Jonah should reveal that the joke is on us. We are the ones who get all tied up in justice and angry at God's compassion, even calling it evil. But the problem is, we're all a little bit too much like me. I don't like the joke being on me. I don't. I don't like it when I'm in a group of people and everybody's doing a joke and I finally figure it out there, it's on me. Maybe you do like it. I, I just don't. I've, I've never liked that. And I don't like it when I come to the Scripture and I find that the joke is on me also. And so we are resistant to seeing ourselves there. But I think we have to begin to see ourselves there. 
I mean, it's satire. I mean, you, you can think of any number of things, but Saturday Night Live is, is probably a common one that would come to mind. Uh, at least back when they used to actually have humor going both ways, it was, it was uh, uh, humorous because you'd see people get up and they would play the part. They were really good at acting the part of whatever president it was at the time. And uh, so, you know, you, George Bush the first, you know, you, it wouldn't be prudent at this juncture. You have things like that that they bring in and you realize. And then they, they make fun of things that are very real, but they kind of expose how silly we are and not thinking more deeply about those things. That, that we end up realizing that we've been a little bit goofy in how we've viewed some of these things. And that's what satire does. It, it, it helps us laugh at our own problems so that we can begin to deal with them. Finally, Jonah is the arbiter of justice. And this is important, and I'll just warn you up front. If you've had significant trauma in your life and hearing descriptions of gore would harm you, it would be a good time to get up and use the restroom. Because I'm going to describe somewhat graphically the Assyrians and what they did to people. So that you can get a grasp on what's going on in this book from the original audience's perspective. Um, who are these Ninevites? The Ninevite, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, so they're Assyrians. And the Assyrians, about 30 to 40 years, so one generation from the time of this event, when these things happen, will destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, taking the people captive. These ten tribes, again, as we stated earlier, never to return to the land. Clearly, the audience knows that the repentance of chapter 3 was very short-lived. The repentance of chapter 3 was very short-lived. Archaeologists have uncovered large stone-carved reliefs of post-battle scenes of Assyria's conquest, as well as written descriptions of the cruelty. There, there has been in history no empire that inflicted as much cruelty upon the conquered people as the Assyrians. If you've kept abreast of the cruelties inflicted by the Russian army upon many civilians in Ukraine at the instruction of their commanders, you may, be, you may well be sick to your stomach, but it has nothing on Assyria. Assyria boasted of their cruelty upon captured peoples. Live dismemberments in which one hand is kept attached so that the torturer can shake it just before they died. Captured peoples required to carry the heads of their family and friends on poles in parades. They would stretch live prisoners with ropes to skin them alive. Those skins were then put on display. They pulled the tongues and testicles of live victims and they burned the young alive. You getting a picture of who the Assyrians are. Maybe you can begin to see why Jonah wasn't so happy with God. And when you can begin to see why Jonah's not so happy with God, instead of thinking how ridiculous Jonah is for being unhappy with God, then you begin to understand why the book is about us. Jonah was not a racist, nor was he a xenophobe. He had a real clear sense of who these people were, that they were indeed the death of his people sooner or later. Jonah saw himself righteously as the arbiter of justice. That Jonah wanted to see the Ninevites perish is not the surprise in this story. 
how we often read it. Like, why would Jonah want the Ninevites not to be spared? That isn't the surprise in the story to the original audience. The surprise in the story and the original audience is that God wanted to show them compassion. That's the shocking nature of the book. Evangelicals can get pretty riled up over rumors that such and such a group is trying to destroy our society. Engaging them compassionately, compassionately is never really on the table. The Ninevites weren't just potential destruction for Israel. They were imminent danger of destruction that proved to be true. The point is that we would all be Jonah, and anyone coming along and suggesting that we would show compassion to Ninevites would be canceled in all of our churches. And by the way, the church created and perfected cancel culture long before the world had it. I mean, for centuries. Um, so we, we, we should be at least aware of that. And yes, it's not pretty when it's turned on us. The people of the day would not have been surprised when Jonah heard the word of the Lord. That, that when Jonah heard the word of the Lord, knowing God's propensity to show compassion, that he got up and fled to Tarshish from before the Lord to Jaffa and found a ship coming from Tarshish, paid its fare, and, and, and hedged to Tarshish. You see, because those people were to Jonah too, and we are Jonah, called to be innocent and sons of faithfulness, but in reality, we are far too often anything but. Well, We've introduced this book, and we've barely mentioned, guess what, the fish. Barely mentioned the fish. That's because this book isn't about a fish. This book's about us. We need to get that straight. The fish is only brought in to help tell the story. The book of Jonah is about something much more relevant to our lives. In what relationships, we might ask, do you consider yourself the right arbiter of justice? Now, husbands, don't look at your wife right now because they could be staring at you. <laughs> thinking that this might apply. I mean, how many times do we think that we have got to make sure that justice is served in our relationships? Why not compassion? Why not compassion? What limits have you put on God's will to show compassion? Are there areas of your life in which you find compassion to be evil, just as Jonah did regarding God's compassion on Nineveh? And maybe you can't identify them right away, but as we go through this book, we might be able to point a few out. How often do we want Rambo to deal with our enemies rather than the Lord who is compassionate and gracious? You know, he can just go and deal with every injustice that was done. In like manner. Personally, I'm, I kind of like the Rambo way. I find it sinful and wrong. But that's how I'm wired is to think that way. And I'm guessing that in some sense, most of us are wired that way. And we need to be rewired. Amen? As we go through this book, let's explore ways that we think like Jonah and what it means to be chosen and called by God. Now, I just want to close with this, because it's always important to make the connection to Christ in any message and in any book. And the connection to Christ, I would argue, in this book is powerful, but we're not there fully yet. It's going to take us to time, some time to get there. Now, I've given hints for sure, but we'll get there, especially in chapter 2, to understanding the connection to Christ. 
But to be sure, lest I leave you with no clear connection to Christ, Christ is revealed in this book's presentation of its utter strangeness of God's ways in the world. Ultimately, those strange ways find their fullness in the cross of the Lord Jesus, which is God's rescue mission to us. He came to save those who would be the death of him. It must not be missed that the God who saves us through the cross of Jesus calls us to take up our cross, our willing obedience to God's very strange ways in the world. Like calling us to forgive our enemies and pray for them. That's a strange one. But it has roots right here, certainly, in this book we call Jonah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach this book, which is your word that has been given to us, help us to understand this book. Help us to hear its message, the one that you intend for us to have, the one that it was to carry in its, to its original audience, then understood in how it applies to us today. And Lord, most of all, help us to see justice as you see it. Because frankly, Lord, as I look at the real events that stand behind this book, my tendency would be to think that Jonah had it right. And yet I know that you had it right. Let's stand and worship the Lord.